the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is, and welcome back as we do every hour on Monday, every second hour on Monday. We are joined by Brandon J. Weikert. His book is Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower. He has a new edition coming out and a book on uh, foreign policy with regard to the Middle East, focusing on Iran. After that, he is also the publisher of The Weikert Report, theweikertreport.com. And he spells his name W-E-I-C-H-E-R-T. I'm reading about Russia and the Ukraine, China, some <laughs> goings on in the Middle East. These times were meant for Brandon J. Weicker. Welcome back, buddy. Oh, thank you for having me. And thank you, as always, for the, uh, the kind words. Well, I don't give them out for no reason. And <laughs> I don't know that they're kind. They're just accurate. Um, well, you know, yeah. Brandon, I, I've, I've learned from a, a, a lot of people, some of the best in the, in the business of, of teaching and foreign policy and expertise and domestic policy and social policy, you name it, I've just been privileged that way. And you are in that class. You make things oh, clear. You, you know, I can't oh, my, tell you, you, that's how you know you're in the presence of a wise person. They make <laughs> things clear. Things don't have to be so complicated. <laughs> If only, if only my wife thought that way, too. No, I'm only well, I know. That's a whole other category. I can't do a show on that. That's a whole other thing. That Dennis Prager can do that. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not able enough to do that. But I will tell you, I always, I, I always wonder about the foreign policy establishment taking too many lessons from modern, uh, the modern academy. Which oh, I, way I, too many. Yeah, way too many, which is basically um, the um, – the ability to 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 take uh, common sense and truth and make it obscure, and I, yes. I I just don't think it's necessary. Um, it's it may be fun for building resumes, it may be a good in, employment practice in the academy, but it doesn't right. really help anyone who has to live in this world. That's right. There's absolutely no very few real world application. You don't really have the scholar practitioner practitioner model anymore it's now all just propaganda yeah pretty much pretty mm-hmm. much all right well there are a bunch of things i do want to talk to you about in your wheelhouse and i okay. and i'll start with the with the with the one that uh, we don't often start with and that's um that's russia and uh, putin yeah. and the ukraine you have a piece up a new piece in the asia times where you are a columnist amongst your yeah. other gifts and uh, jobs a bloody new europe is being born in ukraine talk to me yeah, so basically, um, the the goal, if you remember, uh, or if you pe- people have read the history, the goal of NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, was originally to keep the Germans down, the Americans in, and the Russians out. Right. And uh, for the last 30 years now, the Americans are checking out, the Germans are standing up tall, and the Russians are moving in. Um, and uh, basically, whatever one's opinion on NATO, I certainly think it's an alliance that has really, in its current form, outlived its usefulness. 
Uh, but, you know, whatever one thinks of NATO and American involvement on the continent, uh, the fact is uh, Vladimir Putin's regime in Moscow senses a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to essentially reassert the traditional historical Russian uh, uh, hold over many European, Eastern, and some Southern European states, in this case, uh, Ukraine. And that what's going on in Ukraine, this sort of uh, abrogation of American responsibilities coupled with the bizarre interference in terms from, from Germany and their role with America and Russia, uh, and then also with the, obviously, the, the increase in Russian presence in Ukraine, you're seeing the birth of what I think is going to be a far more divided, far weaker, and far bloodier Europe uh, than what we Americans have gotten accustomed to since 1991. Uh, I think this is definitely a continuation of the death of the European Union. I think this is a, a diminution, at the very least, of NATO. And I think this is the rise of a real Russian uh, hold on Europe, sort of this birth of a new Eurasian order uh, that, that Russia is, is midwifing right now. Let's let's spend some time on this, if you don't mind, because it's easy, I think, for a lot of people to get caught too terribly up in things like, as you point out, NATO's role and, and, and you know, whether it's useful, whether NATO can protect Ukraine, whether it should. Right. Isn't the question at the end of the day, Brandon, isn't the question, what is the signal the United States is sending about what it's willing right. to stand up for and right. not. Isn't that really right. kind of the lesson right. we've drawn over and over again? I mean, I, yeah. I think of Syria and Obama and the red line. Uh, let me just right. let me just repeat. The biggest thing wasn't that Syria used gas on its own people. It had done so before. That's what regimes like that do. The big issue was that Barack Obama threatened a red line and Syria right. knew it could right. get away with it in the face of that red line. Right. Isn't that the right. issue? That's the issue. And I think that, you know, for, I've said this before on your program. I've said it on others. I don't think Ukraine, eastern Ukraine specifically, is worth the bones of a single American GI. Right. Um, but, but I also think that the way Russia has treated Ukraine has been abysmal. Uh, and it certainly is an affront to anyone who is a believer, as I am, in the concept of national sovereignty. Uh, and at the very least, the question has to be asked, um, is it okay, is it moral for an American leader to gaslight the leadership of a besieged country like Ukraine into basically taking very risky and provocative actions against their much bigger uh, a neighbor in Russia in this case, even though the American leader has no intention of actually following through and helping those that smaller besieged country when it really counts. And I think the answer to that is decisively no. Um, I think that there was an agreement uh, between Russia, the United States, Ukraine, and Europe, the Minsk Protocol, uh, which basically would have, through diplomatic means, neutralized the matter of eastern Ukraine, which is where the bulk of the Russian-speaking population in Ukraine lives, where they're fighting right now over who controls it, Russia or Ukraine, 
Uh, the Minsk Protocol was agreed to in 2015 or 16 by all interested parties in which basically it would neutralize eastern Ukraine as a geopolitical hot potato. And the Ukrainians, with the backing of the Americans, the prompting of the Americans from Obama to Trump to uh, now Biden, uh, the, the, the American side was pushing Kiev not to follow through on the agreements. And, of course, the, the Kiev regime didn't really want to do it. But now push comes to shove, and the Americans and NATO are nowhere to be found. Right. Yes, we're making right. speeches and we're threatening sanctions, but ultimately, you know, there is a substitute for power. And Russia's got all the power right now in this particular instance. And, and Putin knows it, and he wants to make America look bad. He wants to send a signal to the world that the American-led world order is over and that it, now it's the rise of the autocrats. And he has to do this to shore up his support at home in Russia, which is ailing right now. And he also has to do this because to compete or balance against a rising China, he's got to restore Russian control over those former Soviet bloc states in Central Asia and Eastern Europe. And Ukraine is the linchpin for that endeavor. And so he's not going to back down. Biden has really created a really bad situation here where America is going to be humiliated because Russia is going to take eastern Ukraine and there's not a darn thing anybody can do about it. Right. That's that's the condition we're looking at right now. It's not a condition we had to look at right now. Uh, right. As far as I'm concerned, Brandon, because I, you speak common sense into the common heart that, you know, n nobody here believes that parts of Ukraine or the even perhaps the, the totality of the Ukraine. How did you put it? Are worth the bones of a single GI. But right. but isn't there a way didn't Ronald Reagan and Donald Trump actually in his own way prove that you can do other things? You can arm these allies to the teeth yes, and so send signals. That. Go ahead. Yes, and we've done that. But the thing about Ukraine that's problematic is the geography, and it's yeah. not a NATO member. It's not. It's not protected by the Article Five uh, agreement in the NATO Charter. Putin knows it. Everybody knows it. The Germans, apparently, I was reading the Financial Times. The Germans are now blocking NATO weapon shipments to Ukraine. Oh, hold that so, thought. Hold that right there, Miss, Mrs. Helper over in Germany. Okay, good. Hold, yeah. hold that thought, Brandon. I want to pick up on it, and then I want to talk about what it means to invade an ally and U.S. humiliation. Uh, we'll be right back with more from Brandon Weicker. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Brandon J. Weikert is our guest, as he is every Monday. We're talking about Russia and Ukraine. We'll get to some of the other hot spots in the world in a moment. But this deserves a conversation. Brandon, as you were saying, well, in response to what I said, which is we don't, maybe we don't need to, to put the risk of our GIs' uh, uh, lives on the line if we arm uh, some of our allies to the teeth and make clear to the autocrats and tyrants around the world that there are things up with which the United States will not put. You say we've done that, but Mrs. Germany is making that project difficult, yes? Right, right. So I was in the Financial Times this morning, was the whole article front page above the fold about how Germany is preventing shipments of NATO lethal aid to Ukraine. And this is very obvious why. Uh, the Germans want this Ukrainian issue to go away. Yeah. The Germans, the Germans need 
the Nord Stream 2 natural gas pipeline to be completed. Uh, a couple weeks ago, after the, after the Russians uh, threatened to invade Ukraine and they did their anti-satellite weapons test that almost destroyed the International Space Station, basically Germany was in a position where it had no choice but to stand in solidarity with the Americans. And so behind the scenes, they used this sort of regulatory uh, you know, gimmick where they, they put the kibosh temporarily on the, almost, the basically completed Nord Stream 2. Um, but at behind the scenes, there Berlin is begging Washington, please don't put sanctions on the Russians involved with Nord Stream 2 because then the project will die, and we need that cheap Russian energy going into the winters. Well, we're going to need that over the next several years. We need that cheap energy. And so basically Germany's trying to figure out how they can kind of pay felty to America without actually doing something that would risk their budding relationship, their lucrative relationship with Russia. And I think this is how they're trying to square it is overtly they're dinging Russia and they're slowing down the completion of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. But behind the scenes, they're, they're really doing damage to the Ukrainian effort to defend itself, uh, and they're really undermining the Biden administration. And I think what I was trying to get at before is that, obviously, Ukraine's right to, uh, to exist as an independent country, we all can, well, most of us can agree is, yeah, that's, that's their right. And we, as national, you know, nationalists, we all support the national sovereignty. However, um, we can't go to war for Ukraine um, and so what we should have been doing for the last five years, yes, sending the arms to Ukraine, but telling Kiev, the government there, you've got to work within the confines of the Minsk agreement, because otherwise it's going to provoke this very same issue that we've all been trying to avoid, which is where Russia's going to do something crazy, and we're not going to be able to stop them. I just, w- I just want they- people to understand, I want to underscore where you concluded from where you started, because it's really quite a nice thread, Brandon. NATO NATO came about to contain the Soviet Union, Russia, the Russians, and to keep Germany low. We now are in a situation where Germany is uniting with the Russians. Right, and they're bringing the French along with them. And right now we see as a sideshow... Because of our Australia-UK-US nuclear submarine deal with Australia, where we cut out the French, yep. we now have this new rivalry with, with Paris, where now they're working counter to us in the Indo-Pacific, and it, as well as in uh, the Middle East with this new, this new uh, fighter jet deal with uh, the UAE, which they basically got the UAE to kick out the F-35 in favor of the French fighter jet. And then, meanwhile, France is getting you know very close to Berlin, which is in turn getting very close to Moscow. And so now you have a real conduit for Russian power being formed with Germany, the, the, the economic beating heart of Europe, and with France, which is without a doubt the most potent uh, indigenous military force on the continent. And so this is not a good position to be in. The, the, the pieces on the board are moving in ways that an American leader has not had to contend with in probably a century. And we have an American leader who is completely incapable of flexibility and maneuvering with these dynamic times. Um, Brandon, let me try another let me try another devil's advocacy position with you on on this for a moment, if I can. Um, 
bones of a GI. I mean, the the point is, it's not worth American lives to 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 stand up for or save a country that we don't have a, a you know a, a lot of. Uh, in this particular case, Ukraine. I'm not saying in the case of Poland. Yeah, no, I understand. I understand, but that is the question. That is the question. Where where do we come down when we're starting to think about in 1938? Something you and I have talked about. Yes. We allowed. Germany to take a piece of Czechoslovakia and called it peace. The next year, what, 1939, people were saying, well, who cares about Danzig? Right. But by 1942, we were trying to save all of Europe. It's a, it's a version of in the 70s. Why do yeah. we care about yeah. Vietnam, in right. a sense? Right? We, do, right? we do worry about what happens after these dominoes fall, right. don't we? Well, here's the problem. Yeah. It, it, the Ukraine is beyond our defensive perimeter. I'm just looking at this very strategically. We really, it's it, it. We can't defend Ukraine the way we have to if we're serious about Ukraine keeping its territorial integrity. However, we have very strong partners, specifically in Eastern Europe, the with the Visegrad uh, nations led by Poland, who have the infrastructure capabilities and willpower Mm -hmm. to totally resist Russian irredentism. And so it is Poland that has to become the sort of linchpin of the American defense of Europe against uh, Russia. My friend Jacek Bartosiak is is, he's sort of like this rising star in in Poland and their defense establishment. He's got a great podcast, but, but his whole thing is you know, the Poles can lead the way with the Americans backing them. They can help keep the Russians out of Europe. That's their goal. That's the overarching goal of Polish foreign policy and many of the other Eastern European states. So with Poland, we can really channel our defensive energies into building them up so they can then turn around and kind of do the heavy lifting in Europe while we focus on other issues like rising China. I'm all for it. I love it. I'm all for it, and I love it, and I love defending Poland. I love the Poles. How committed to Poland is Joe Biden? Well, that's the thing. Poland's a NATO member, so it doesn't really matter how committed or not Biden is. The fact is we have have actual treaty obligations to them, and the Poles are one of the few countries that has consistently – properly funded their defense as per the NATO, uh, you know, requirement. Uh, and so it doesn't really matter what any individual administration wants when it comes to NATO. Uh, we have a duty, and we have not duty, we have a treaty obligation to these countries that are in the alliance to do a certain amount of, of, of capability sharing and support. And with all, due, with all due respect to Biden, while I've been very negative about him in the last five to six months. The fact is, um, Biden has still supported some cooperation with Poland, uh, not as much as the former administration, which is sad, but he has not totally abandoned Poland. And I don't think we can totally abandon Poland, not with people like Jake Sullivan and even the president himself being so virulently in public anti-Russia. So at some point, they have to live up to the NATO obligations even if they don't want to. Perfect. Perfect. Brandon Weikert, thank you. Don't go away. I want to do a few other things in the news with you sure. when we come back. Uh, I'm Seth Leibson. He is Brandon J. Weikert, 602 He'll take your calls, too. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Brandon J. Weikert is our guest. He's the publisher of the Weikert Report, theweikertreport.com, free to anyone who wants to learn from him, which I highly encourage. If you want to be smart in foreign policy, you read Brandon Weikert. It's really that simple. Uh, Brandon, let me talk to you a little bit about Joe Biden and China, if I may. Why all of a sudden is Taiwan in the news again as possibly having to deal with an invasion from China? All of a sudden, that's coming up. At the same time, I see that certain countries like Pakistan, which I thought were our ally, are kind of siding with China and not joining democracy summits that they're invited to. Why they're invited, I don't know. Uh, Do we have all this cattywampus well, I think part of the problem is um, we don't know what we want to do. Okay. Um, the whole the whole idea of a democracy summit sounds great on paper until you look at some of the people yeah. we invited. Yeah. Uh, the Congo. Yeah. Uh, you know, you look at pernicious human rights violators. I was waiting to see Palestine in there with right. their terrorist funded, you know, uh, Hamas led government or whatever, and 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 the. the it was it was truly asinine. We looked like Philippines gets in, uh, Singapore does not, right? Right, right, absolutely. And and I like the Philippines and I like Singapore, but the Singapore is definitely the more democratic yes. of the two, yes. um, and also the more economically dynamic. Yes, um, uh, it, it, you look at um, the fact that uh, Taiwan was humiliated yep. by the U.S. State Department, yep. humiliated. And by the way, the democracy summit, um, the biggest issue of democracy, at least in the international realm, is the issue of whether or not Taiwan is in fact a country. And that democracy summit, if it had any heft whatsoever, and I understand, and I'm not saying we should necessarily do that at this point, but if it really was a serious summit, if the Biden administration had any kind of galvanizing grand foreign policy or grand strategy for the future against China. Why did we not leave that democracy summit you know, decisively saying Taiwan is a free country, right. it is a sovereign state, not a quasi-country like it's been since Carter signed the Shanghai communique with uh, Beijing in 79. It is a country and it is a democracy and it is separate uh, and sovereign from China. Uh, that would have been a democracy summit worth its weight in gold. You bet. But they didn't do that. Nope. And I know why they didn't do it, because they don't want to risk a war, because that's a casus belly in the in Beijing's terms. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but, but, you know, this is all just posturing then, and we look really bad. And China is watching this, laughing at us. Meanwhile, they're getting a real strategic partner, Pakistan, for the last 30 years of ours, a real pain in the neck, yes, but they are an actual strategic partner in the global war on terror. Uh, well, they're getting Pakistan to overnight about face and, uh, you know, abandon the so-called uh, ally in the United States in our greatest moment of need when we need these Eurasian countries to pick sides. Uh, and so the bottom line is, uh, uh, you know, we're missing the forest for the trees. We should not be talking democracy. That's not the issue here. It's not. The issue is who will run the world by 2049. And the only determinant or the only determining factor will be which country has comprehensive national power. Will it be the United States or China? And through that comprehensive national power, 
the United States or China will attract the rest of the world. It doesn't need to walk around beating its chest. Correct. And, you know, doing these summits that ultimately amount to... Yeah, why, 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 exactly right. Why do countries think they want to assign themselves to an affiliation with China right now? It's all about power and money. Power and money. Exactly. right now, China looks like they have rising power, they've got a lot of money, and they actually look like they're governed more effectively than we are. Mm -hmm. And that's just the bottom line. Now, a lot of these countries, you know, you see these articles, uh, China doesn't have many friends. That's true. A lot of countries don't like China, but a lot of countries, including our own, do a lot of business with China and kowtow to China because they want that billion-person market share. And in the meanwhile, China takes all that and they convert that into diplomatic and political capital with which they can spend on building the Chinese century, which they are doing. And they're looking also, by the way, at what's going on in the Middle East. And they're looking also, by the way, at how Russia is about to take Ukraine. And they're taking notes in Beijing. And they're seeing how far America will let the bad guys go before the bad guys are punched in the nose. I want and to pick up on that. Let me pick up on that theme in the next break with a special regard to the Middle East. I want to talk a little bit about that. I want yeah. to talk about uh, Iran and uh, what they're saying about the UAE Israel summit and just point out the hilarity of what we're dealing with, although it's not really funny because people will buy it. On December 4th, I'm reading China issued a white paper. The Chinese State Council issued a white paper titled China. Democracy that works, asserting it's the world's largest democracy. Words just don't mean anything anymore. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Brandon J. Weikert is our guest. Uh, he of the Weikert Report, he of Winning Space, he of Asia Times. And so much more. Brandon, uh, Israel is engaging in meetings. The prime minister of Israel is engaging meetings with the leadership of the United Arab Emirates. Um, head, headline for you here. Uh, Iran says Israeli prime minister's visit to the UAE harmful to regional security. Why, why is it harmful that, that Israel and the UAE are meeting? Well, it's only harmful if you want to see Iran take over the region. Okay. Because when you have Israel uh, aligning their interests and their military capabilities and their uh, diplomacy with other Muslim, Sunni Muslim powers, that creates a uh, barricade to uh, Iran's Shiite Islamist uh, uh, power play that they're conducting right now. Um, and so if you're in favor of that, then you're going to think this is a really bad move. The Biden administration clearly has been against uh, uh, Israel and the Sunni Arab states going away from Iran to counter Iran, because if you look at what's going on in the Vienna talks over Iran's nuclear weapons program, you look at what happened between Naftali Bennett uh, and the Biden administration the last six weeks, uh, it's very obvious that the Biden administration wants to weaken and distance itself from the Israelis and the Sunni Arab states and wants to try to undermine the Trump administration's signature Middle East uh, achievement, the Abraham Accords. And so, 
you know, anybody who's opposed to Iran rising to become the dominant indigenous power in the Middle East is going to look at the Israeli-UAE sort of uh, diplomacy uh, as something bad. And it's very telling. It seems there's three explanations for why this is taking place. One is, the most cynical of them, I suppose, is whatever Trump did will do the opposite. One of them is a sincere belief, uh, giving credit to to at least the way they think about themselves, a sincere belief that uh, negotiations with Iran will pacify Iran. And the third, I suppose, is some form of ID fix State Department deep thought that any deal is a good deal. Where where, is that? Is there a fourth I'm missing? It's all of the above. Okay. No, it's all of the above. And as I document very detailed uh, in my forthcoming book, The Shadow War, Iran's Quest for Supremacy, from Jimmy Carter uh, through Bill Clinton, through Barack Obama, and now to Joe Biden. The Democratic Party presidents have genuinely believed they can work and do deals with the Islamists of Iran. They prefer working with Islamists. They think it represents the majority of people in the region, and they think that's the sort of the low-hanging fruit uh, in terms of, of making easier, better deals in the Middle East for America. Uh, and so I think that's a completely insane vision. But the Democratic Party, their elite, their leadership in foreign policy indicates that that is what they think. And they certainly would rather negotiate uh, a settlement with Iran that lets Iran get nukes and get a pathway to becoming, at the very least, a uh, balancer against Saudi Arabia and Israel. Uh, they, they prefer that. In fact, Barack Obama talked about this in 2010. Uh, there was an article by Kenneth Waltz. Uh, who's one of the doyens of American international relations scholarship. Uh, and he wrote a piece in the Foreign Affairs magazine in which he outlined just how uh, using, you know, rationality, uh, rational actor theory, that basically Iran, despite its crazy talk, is a rational actor, and we can trust them with the bomb. And in fact, it will work for our benefit because... Uh, the other two major powers in the region, the Sunnis of Saudi Arabia and the Jewish democracy of Israel, would automatically start balancing against the nuclear Iran that was normalized and integrated into the region order. Uh, and therefore, it would actually create some kind of stability between the three powers, and it would allow for the United States to sort of back away from the region and let the three powers there play off each other and whittle each other down. Uh, rather than Americans constantly getting involved. And on paper, that sounds great. And this is something that Obama believed in. But, of course, in practice, it doesn't work out that way. Uh, The Saudis and the Sunni powers are going to eventually recognize the Americans aren't going to have their back. So they're going to start pivoting to Russia and China. At the same time, we've already seen this in the last six months, Riyadh is making overtures to Tehran, to try to create a more uh, stable, open, less hostile relationship with the Iranians, recognizing that Iran is ascendant. Meanwhile, Israel is presently being backed into a very bad corner where it's going to have no friends and have no choice but to lash out against Iran because uh, Iran's going to get the bomb and they're going to use it on Israel 
before you know it. And so Israel's going to be in a use-it-or-lose-it uh, position, and they're not going to have any friends because America's abandoning them. And the Sunni Arabs, you know, seeing the terrain, are starting to pivot and try to make nice with uh, the, the Iranians, their, their enemy, rather than be left out in the cold the way Israel is about to. And this is the world that Barack Obama and now Joe Biden is making in the Middle East, and it's terrible. We're talking to Brandon J. Weikert. Brandon, you know how this world works. You used to live in Washington, as I did. There's a piece in the Washington Post today by Max Boot, um, the the first sentence of which is, President Donald Trump's 2018 decision to pull out of the Iran nuclear deal might have been the most disastrous foreign policy miscalculation since the invasion of Iraq in 2003. That he supported. That, I was just going to say, if there right. was one columnist right. who was more supportive of that 2003 By action way, than Max Boot, I don't know who it is. That having been said, yeah. that having yeah. been said, he goes on to say, at least with the deal... Iran's nuclear bomb was estimated to be at least a year off. Wow, at least a year off, assuming full dis- transparency and disclosure. But you know over at the State Department and at the NSC, they're just passing this, this article around like, 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 this, 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 like, like this just came from Mount Olympus. Right. Well, I think it's important to note that Max Boot um, was hawker, you know, the, the uber hawk on Iran until the last, Four years when Donald Trump was in office. This is a this is a very sad and pathetic example of Trump derangement syndrome on steroids. Because Max Boot and his ilk are one of the reasons we, as I noted, went into Iraq uh, because he was so gonzo about going to war in the Middle East. Yeah. So it's, I have whiplash. At yeah. yeah hold that thought. Hold, all right. Settle yourself. Put a <laughs> neck brace on. Take a beat and a break with me and come back and finish that thought. Is that fair, Brandon? Yeah. All right. Fair. The doctor is in. I'm Seth Leapson. He's Brandon Weikert. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson show, playing the music of some friends uh, like Jeff and Mark. Uh, Brandon Weikert is our guest. Brandon, that point you were just making before we went to break on on the issue of Iran and the nuclear deal. The nuclear deal, I've I've read everything I possibly could about it. The nuclear deal wasn't worth the paper it was written on, so far as I no. could tell. And this this ID fix that this is going to be the brass ring that the Obama, excuse me, the Biden administration is striving for. Uh, seems to be some kind of some some kind of dream palace of the State Department that will yeah. lead to actually more violence in the world. Yeah, it's going to trigger a world war. It's yeah, going to happen. Okay. Um, basically, this deal was not a. It wasn't a treaty. It was an executive agreement. It did not pass ratification in Congress. They, they had to backdoor this thing, uh, and it was toothless. If you, and I, I actually, in my book that's coming out in uh, next fall, I actually, the last chapter, I go line by line for the bulk of the JCPOA agreement between Obama and the Iranians, in which I highlight the sunset clauses. Had the agreement not been abrogated by Trump, it wouldn't have mattered. This year, in the year 2020, rather, right, right. Uh, they, would have, they would have started getting enrichment capabilities. By 2025, it explicitly said that the, there would be a sunset clause enacted that would have allowed for Iran to legitimately build a small arsenal of nuclear bombs. And then by 2030, 
all of the restrictions on Iran, what little there were, would have been removed automatically without any negotiation taking place. And so this was the kind of fanciful, uh, you know, negotiating, quote unquote, that only a college academic could do. It was absolutely wordy. It had absolutely no teeth. And it was absolutely meaningless if the mission was to stop Iran from acquiring weaponized nuclear capabilities with which to threaten their neighbors and destabilize the world order. In fact, it did the opposite. And all it did was it gave Iran the space and time it needed to finally fulfill their vision of an Iranian-led regional order by annihilating the Israelis, suppressing their Sunni neighbors, and beating up the Americans and Europeans with the Russians and Chinese backing their every move. And so that is what this agreement did. And Trump was brilliant for pulling us out when he did. He should have done it earlier than 2018, uh, but he did it. And what we should have been doing was not just, uh, you know, getting the Abraham Accords through, but we should have really been hyperspeeding the the formalization of a Middle East NATO, uh, you know, of the Sunni Arabs and Israel. Brandon Weikert, bless you, sir. Thank you. Until next week, I'm Seth Liebson. He is Brandon Weikert. Right. I will be back in the next hour in just a few moments. But Brandon Weikert will join us again next Monday, as he does every single Monday. And if you want to be smart, you want to listen to him. Check out the Weikert Report. It's free, theweikertreport.com. We'll be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.